Hello, and welcome to the Vijay Himong podcast. We are a global open access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in hematological oncology. We were thrilled to welcome the experts on our first ever AML sessions to discuss the latest updates from the virtual ASCO and EHA 2020 meetings. In this panel discussion, Naval Dover from University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center is joined by Marian Subcleve from LMU Hospital Munich, Andrew Way of Alfred Hospital and Monash University, and Amir Fatih of Massachusetts General Hospital to discuss the exciting updates in the field of acute myeloid leukemia, including developments in immunotherapy, target therapeutic agents, and venetoclax-based treatments. Welcome everybody to the first of the AML sessions on Vijay Hemonk. I'm Navar Dabur from MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. I'm pleased to be joined today by my colleagues, Dr. Marion Subquivi from LMU Hospital in Munich, Germany, Dr. Andrew Way from Alfred Hospital and Monash University, Melbourne, Australia, and Dr. Amir Fatih from the Mass General Hospital in Boston. Today, we are going to look at four key topics in a uh, active discussion based on focused areas from the virtual ASCO and EHA meeting. Uh, the four areas that we hope to cover in this panel discussion format are uh, immunotherapies emerging in AML, uh, venetoclax-based treatments in uh, acute myeloid leukemia, and then lastly, targeted therapies specifically focusing on FLT3 and IDH inhibitors. So to uh, start the uh, panel, I'll uh, maybe go through some of the immunotherapy updates that I found useful uh, from the ASCO-EHA meeting and then turn it over to Dr. Subkrivi and others who uh, have some ideas and suggestions on what they think will be going forward. So I think this was a very interesting meeting. We are definitely seeing more and more immunotherapy emerging in both AML and MDS uh, over the last year, year and a half. Um, I think to me, the big ones from this meeting were uh, bispecific antibody updates. There was data from AMG 330 uh, that was shown at the ASCO me meeting by Dr. Farhad Ravandi. Uh, Marion was one of the uh, co-authors on that one. And it does look like, uh, in my view, that the safety profile is starting to get better and better with these agents probably because we're getting smarter at how to use them. You know, ramp up dosing approaches are being implemented. Uh, there also does seem to be uh, early use of uh, drugs such as tocilizumab, which seem to mitigate the CRS that can be seen with these uh, agents. Uh, the response rates still, I think, are in about 25, 30% uh, range, but hopefully as we get to the higher dose levels and as was shown by Farhad Ravandi, at the higher dose levels, especially the 240, 480 and above, there de does seem to be responses, especially in people who have lower blast uh, disease and favorable T cell to blast ratio. So I think again, just like molecular, this looks like it's gonna be going more into a selected population where we need to identify patients that have favorable immune profile, high T cell infiltration, and probably not high blast, which is kind of very similar to the profile we're seeing with plenitumumab, for example, in ALL. So, uh, that's an interesting area that's developing. I think a couple of others where uh, the CD47 antibody, which is a macrophage checkpoint, uh, you know, this inhibits uh, CD47, which is a major inhibitory pathway to macrophage phagocytosis, promoting an eat-me signal. Uh, so I presented some of that data at the EHA meeting, and David Salman presented some of it at the ASCO. Um, to me, really, the safety of this combination is uh, very, very attractive. Now we've treated probably across 90 or so patients in AML-MDS. The 60-day mortality remains zero uh, in the frontline setting, which is very encouraging in this multi-center study. And I think especially in uh, the TP53 mutated AML, we are seeing a very early signal for high response rates along with good duration of response. We had 12 patients presented. There are more enrolled and hopefully will be updated uh, later this year. Uh, but of those 12, uh, uh, nine had ACRCRI, and uh, the duration of response has not been reached yet with a median follow-up for about eight to nine months. So looks encouraging. Safety is very good. Um, on its own, maybe a very good combination in MDS of azamagro, maybe in TP53 AML. But I think uh, the interest uh, for us, at least Anderson, is how this could be potentially built into a triplet or other combinations for the non-TP53 AML where is event, of course, is doing very well, and Andrew will talk about that, but we can always do better. You know, the two-year survivals are still around 40%, so can you bring that up? 
So with that, I'll kind of turn it over to Marion for some of her thoughts. Yes, so also welcome from me. So just in general, I think at ASCO, um, focusing now on bytes and cars, we can see that there's still some struggle in translating the success from B-cell lymphoplasia, neoplasia treatment and ALL treatment to other entities just in general. And I think um, that's also um, demonstrated that Besides AML, um, the most interesting stuff that was presented in my eyes in, in bites and car setting was uh, in relation to BCMA, so multiple myeloma, uh, where there was very interesting um, uh, talks about biospecifics and CAR T cells. And now coming back to AML, I think um, this underlines the, still the struggle we are having uh, with the target antigen. So um, in B-cell neoplasia, as well as in the other entities, we are still targeting a lineage antigen. And um, the presentation on AMG um, 330 targeting CD33, um, I just want to sort of um, maybe explain why it's taking a little bit longer than we probably expect getting um, clinical results out. Um, and um, that is due to the non-restricted um, target antigen that is expressed uh, within the myeloid compartment. And I think what might have been underestimated is that we also have a large antigen sink. So every monocyte macrophage is expressing CD33. And uh, one has to point out that in all these trials that were presented at um, ASCO and also at AIR, we are still um, trying to find uh, the dose. So we are still moving up and are now up um, in the AMG 330 trial in a three-step approach going up to 960 a microgram. And if you um, consider what we are applying in BLIN, where the maximal dose is 28 microgram, it highlights um, that the different target antigen situation is a challenge um, just to get um, enough molecules in these heavily pretreated patients. Um, and that was also demonstrated by the presentation uh, by Ravani um, with the update of the 330 trial where 60 patients were now um, presented. Um, and you can see from the um, patient demographics, um, most of the patients had four or more prior treatment lines and um, almost 50% of the patients were presented were post-allogenic stem cell transplantation. So these are really very heavily pretreated um, patients. And I think, uh, first of all, it's really nice to see that the safety um, um, is and, and with advancing um, experience in this field is is okay. So CIS, the most common um, side effect we are observing, we see no neurotoxicity, um, and with TOSI and also steroids, I think um, this is feasible. And one can see in the higher doses, as already Annabelle said, um, responses, but clearly it's still too early to say. When you look at the biomarker um, aspects, you can also see, and that was also a poster at EHA, that clearly the CRS and other side effects correlate to tumor burden and is also a negative factor for response rate. So I think um, what all these data, and that was also already mentioned by you, um, that we need to go in earlier treatment lines with a lower um, tumor burden as already been shown, actually, um, there's a great similarity to blenatumumab. It was already shown in the TOWER trial that there was a better response in patients in salvage one compared to salvage two, which was 11 something months compared to five months um, overall survival. And then clearly the data in the MRD setting um, were really, uh, are really nice with um, 85 of the 113 patients in the BLIN trial showing MRD conversion. So um, I think there is a development um, to use these kind of strategies, the bispecifics, into a much earlier treatment line where you have um, less tumor burden and clearly uh, better um, T-cell fitness. And, and that was also actually shown um, in one of the posters now uh, in the 673 trials. So that is the CD33 byte half-life extended where you can clearly see that 
the dose also correlates um, to T-cell activation. Um, there they assessed the CD8 T-cell activation, um, which is needed um, as a, a mode of action um, in this setting. So um, I think still early data, and I think we are probably uh, getting a little bit impatient um, but um, I think antigen sync is one of the factors um, that has taken more time than we expected. Um, clearly, the CIS is the most common uh, side effect, um, which I think um, we are struggling uh, successfully, but it is um, something to clearly watch out for. And now getting up to the higher doses, we see some responses, but I think we are still not in the optimal patient setting and have to go in an earlier treatment line. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, thanks a lot, Marion. I think one of the big challenges right off the bat for AML is that, which is a good challenge, is we have so many treatments for AML available today compared to what Blina had to face uh, eight years ago or so when it came in, where it was kind of easy to put it in person, second sandwich. You know, was probably the only other thing competing with it. And I think that's the striking difference. So, you know, in the tower studies, even in the Blina early studies, there were salvage one and two. So it kind of got a fair chance. Uh, here, as you said, median was four salvages half with prior transplant. And I mean, there's no therapy that I know of, you know, that works. So, I mean, what do you think will be the way to develop this? Should we be looking at focused MRD populations where maybe there's less competition? Should we restrict the trials to maybe only salvage one and two, which may impact enrollment? Or do you think there's role to start combining them with PD-1 thinking, okay, there's going to be potentially more toxicity, but if we can really enhance the response rate, then people may accept it. What are your thoughts for the future for bites? So I think both things have to be implemented. So I think uh, maybe starting with the, uh, the second part of your question, I think PDL1 is only playing a role if you have a, um, a T cell compartment that is fit for a response. So I mean, it's clearly been shown that PDL1 is not that relevant in. Um, uh, in primary diagnosis. So it, it's something that's evolving. It is somehow an adaptive resistance mechanism in AML. And it's clearly been shown that it can, that it is upregulated on AML cells upon interferon gamma TNF exposure. And um, it's clearly upregulated in patients with a T cell response receiving um, a biospecific. So I think we need to move um, AMG330 into the MRD setting. And I think ideally you would do it in the MRD setting actually in combination because there you have still a, a TSA compartment that is fit enough, uh, that is responsive. But um, I think there will be a relevant number of patients where you still have this adaptive immune um, escape mechanism with upregulation of PDL1. So I actually believe that you need the combination in the MRD setting. Mm -hmm. And I clearly there would be the struggle if this is a bridge to transplant strategy, then you have the problem with the checkpoint inhibitor prior to transplant. Maybe that has to be, I don't know if that's the ideal setting, but, um, and clearly you have to start first with just the bispecific and then do the combination. Mm -hmm. So I would really love to uh, use the bispecifics in an MRD situation, maybe without the checkpoint inhibitor initially, as maybe also possibility uh, bridge to transplant. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think um, anything beyond salvage one is uh, gonna- Marianne? Yeah. Marianne, yeah. Um, if you're going to take uh, immunotherapies or bites into the MRD setting, how would you define the entry point in AML? What level of MRD, what method? That's an excellent point. Um, you know that the ELN and everybody's working hard to get um, MRD flow harmonized so that we can do it uh, worldwide to a certain standard. Clearly, I think the NPM1 um, positive um, patients are um, a good population similar to the RELATSA trial. Um, we have very established and, and validated uh, um, MRD marker. I'm still a little bit hesitant to use MRD flow in this setting. I think it really has to be a um, harmonized approach um, at a maybe central lab where I would say um, at the current time point, 10 to the minus four um, has to be the cutoff. And I'm just um, reflecting upon the interesting uh, paper presented at EHA uh, with respect to the large British myelotype study where they looked at patients after 
one induction and then the patients who are MRD positive got uh, randomised to a variety of uh, intensification strategies. And they found that at the end of the day, there was no difference in terms of survival. And so I find it uh, difficult to reconcile putting those sorts of patients into an MRD uh, immunotherapy study with bites when potentially you could get the same result with um, chemotherapy. So I still don't know if we really know how to define MRD in a robust way where the false positive and false negative rates from cut points at post-induction or post-consolidation are stringent enough to, to really identify a, a truly adverse risk population. I'm not sure. What do, what do others think? It's difficult. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it's very challenging. And, and again, with ALL, I think even defining MRD was much more clear cut than AML. But I think, you know, starting with maybe higher threshold where people would really not disagree, whether it's 0.1 or, you know, some companies are even showing 1% of MRD, which I don't think is MRD, but not going into these really small populations, because I agree with you, it's very hard to know in AML if you have 0.02% on a high sensitivity flow, whether this is going to be reflective of a bad outcome. But with ALL, I think, you know, it was kind of almost a, a cycle where Blina brought MRD into the clinical limelight. We didn't really, you know, we did it, but we didn't really act on it until we had the drug. So I think if we do start seeing a drug that frequently is able to get you MRD negative, and that's associated with the long duration of the CR, then there will be interest. So it's almost kind of a reverse story where the drug may end up helping us all reconcile and define MRD rather than having MRD definition completely set up. Uh, that's kind of what I think from ALL world. But Amir, what do you think? Well, you know, I think uh, there, there are some challenges here. AML is not <laughs> ALL. Um, ALL, in, in many ways, when it comes to bispecifics and CAR T cell modalities, is a much uh, easier disease to treat for a variety of reasons. Better targets, better therapeutic index. Um, at the same time, we see a similar range of tolerability and toxicity issues uh, with, with these agents in both AML and ALL. The other challenge with ALL is MRD is much better defined in terms of both prognostic and um, predictive uh, aspects. You know, we know what to do with it. Um, uh, you know, with AML, we, we pretty much, except for uh, some very prominent exceptions, uh, can only provide prognostic information with uh, MRD at this stage, I mean, albeit if it's MPM1 perhaps or uh, core binding factor alterations, those would be uh, the exceptions. I do agree with the group here that uh, it does appear um, that patients who have a lower burden of disease tend to do better, which is probably not, uh, or tend to respond, uh, which is probably not surprising. And the other aspect is, of course, based on recent uh, data and data also in the past that refractory patients also seem to be a, a patient or primary refractory patients seem to be a, uh, a group of interest uh, for this uh, subgroup. MRD has always been a challenge for me in terms of um, uh, how to proceed, even in, in ALL, because um, in, in, in children especially, um, I feel that they are much more, uh, the oncologist, co oncology community are much more nimble in terms of what, what needs to be done earlier and with lower uh, thresholds of MRD. With us, the data that has emerged really um, mainly from Germany um, is uh, with Blink, with ALL, and we are now trying to figure out how to potentially use that uh, also in AML. What do you do, for example, if you get a value that's slightly less than 0.01? How do you communicate that to the patient? How do you, you know, what do you, what do you say? You have MRT, it's probably not as good as having zero, but we're not gonna do something about it. Those conversations are, are challenging in the real world. Um, although I do agree, it's much more important to get data from relapse refractory patients in, in general. I think we're still dose escalating. We're still trying to figure out the schedule, we're trying to still figure out what, um, dose and schedule is most effective. I think that's most important. I think before taking the more prominent steps and trying to figure out what threshold of MRD uh, is ultimately gonna be the one that we use. So I think defining uh, efficacy uh, thresholds is more important right now and then moving on to, um, and that's what happened I think with planetumumab and ALL. So those would be my thoughts. Okay, yeah, well in the interest, oh, go ahead, Maria. 
No, I just wanted to, I completely agree. And I think one of the strategies maybe to address at least the problem is to have always two time points of the MRD, sort of a confirmatory MRD, right? And and not rely maybe on one value, right? Which can be very arbitrary, maybe. Yeah. So I think in the interest of time, we'll we'll move on and I'm going to turn it over to Andrew to discuss some of the uh, Veneto Clax updates. There was a lot at uh, EHA and ASCO and... uh, you know, let us know his thoughts and uh, then we can have a panel discussion. Andrew, please. Thanks, Neville. So obviously, um, EDHA, the late-breaking abstract uh, session, probably the highlight uh, for the uh, AML field was the presentation of the VLEA randomised trial by Court and Donato. And uh, this was the culmination of uh, of a long uh, development program, which commenced in about 2014. Uh, where the low-dose ROC and hypermethylating agents were combined with venetoclax uh, to try and improve the outcomes uh, with that drug because the monotherapy activity was only modest with about 90%, 19% response rates, which were not particularly durable. So this is on a background of uh, an area where it's really frustrated clinicians for, for many decades. So First of all, in, in practice, uh, the Swedish registry tells us that for patients uh, over the age of 75, uh, almost 50% of patients are uh, treated palliatively with palliative intent. And for patients over the age of 80, uh, in fact, 70% of patients are treated with palliative intent. So an enormous amount of therapeutic nihilism in the older AML setting. The second uh, major issue which has faced trials in the older AML setting for decades is that many trials have demonstrated improvements in response rates uh, and also promising outcomes in early phase studies, but this has not translated into any improvements in survival in the phase three setting. And so this has really been a common factor for for many, many decades. So the Viali-A study was uh, obviously uh, positive Uh, And it was impressively positive because the curves remained separated. Uh, They remained widely apart with a 34% reduction in the risk of death with a large study of over 400 uh, patients. And uh, also the the other major feature was a really high response rate. So 66% of older people or patients unfit for intensive chemotherapy could achieve a response, which is obviously associated with a higher rate of transfusion independence. And furthermore, the duration of these responses was quite uh, impressive. So for patients that achieved CR with azacitidine plus venetoclax, uh, 37% of patients were in this category and the duration of response was 17 months. Furthermore, in subgroup analyses, there were particular subgroups which were quite impressive with respect to their uh, subgroup uh, sensitivity to venetoclax, such as the IDH1 and 2 mutant subgroup. The hazard ratio for this group was about 0.28. And I think this is particularly interesting because there was therefore a large survival advantage for venetoclax plus azacitidine compared to azacitidine in the IDH mutant group. However, we didn't see the separation in the randomized uh, frontline trial with enosidinib plus azacitidine. So it'll be interesting to know what the actual median survival was with venetoclax because uh, in the enosidinib combination it was 22 months. Uh, and it'll be interesting to compare whether uh, that median survival was perhaps superior with um, venetoclax plus azacitidine. There was a companion study also presented at uh, ASCO and EHA, which was the VLEC study, which was low-dose ROC plus venetoclax uh, versus low-dose ROC plus placebo. Uh, again, with some uh, additional follow-up of six months, there was a survival benefit from uh, 4.1 to 8.4 months with a 30% reduction in the risk of death. Again, uh, superior responses translating into higher uh, rates of CR, transfusion independence, uh, event-free survival, and also quality of life. So I think these two sets of studies uh, lay the groundwork for venetoclax perhaps being established as a new standard of care for the treatment of older patients. And this leads now onto many new questions uh, for the future. Uh, How do we improve outcomes in those that don't respond as well to these combinations? Uh, How do we uh, augment uh, responses and duration of responses with combination with targeted therapies? Uh, Again, Courtney Donato gave us an early insight into the potential for the addition of um, ivacidinib to venetoclax plus azacitidine as a as a potential triplet, uh, and also the role of uh, conventional therapies such as allogeneic transplant 
uh, to take advantage of the really high and rapid response rates achievable with these regimens, perhaps selecting patients who are potentially destined for a poorer uh, risk outcome and taking them to transplant to try and take advantage of the improvement in the quality of life in these older people. So I think exciting times uh, for venetoclax and uh, this is just the, the beginning, no doubt. Yeah, thanks a lot, Andrew. I, I mean, I totally agree. We've been using venetoclax very extensively here at MD Anderson as well. And, you know, on the phase twos, the, the data look very encouraging with CRCRI rates of 70 to 80 percent. And it's quite interesting that in the phase three, we're actually not seeing significant attrition of the early response rates. And the survival there is a little bit decreased, but less than I think many of us were worried about. So it's really good to see that you know, this was translatable from the initial 810 center experience uh, to, you know, almost 100 centers and continue to show almost similar response rates, early mortality and survival. And I mean, I think in the United States where it is already approved, uh, I think this is now the standard of care. I don't really see uh, where one would use ASA alone. Uh, you know, there may be some rare, rare, rare exceptions, but this, aside from that, we did have some people who are still uh, let's say not convinced or, you know, unsure just because of what you said that there had been a lot of doublets that had shown early high response rates, almost 70-80% and some early signals for survival, but then there was more toxicity potentially that was not seen when the big centers were managing them. So I think it is, I mean, I think there are two big groups where we're still not clear about whether Azevin is clearly that much more beneficial and even if it is beneficial, there's still a lot of room for improvement. So I think the two big ones in my mind are TP53 and FLT3. You know, in the TP53 mutated population, we've seen across the phase 1B, phase 2, our experience at uh, MD Anderson uh, along with you, as well as now the phase 3, that the response rates are about 45-50%. They're not bad, uh, but unfortunately, the survival usually ends up between 5 to 8 months, which, you know, is arguably maybe better than ASA, maybe not, depending on how you look at it, but definitely room for improvement. Um, so I was going to ask Amir, what's your take on TP53 AML and HMA VEN? Is this something you're using in Boston? Are you looking at other strategies? What do you think the future will be for that group? Well, you know, I think uh, we are. Um, ultimately, uh, this is a subgroup of patients that um, uniformly do poorly, uh, regardless of the choice of uh, treatment. Um, and I think... Um, from my perspective, and this is my view alone, it's not that P53 mutated patients uh, uh, routinely and consistently fail uh, induction traditional chemotherapy. It's just that they fail it at a high rate and tend to also get to all the toxicity of that treatment. But now we have a more gentle combination, which may be as bad, but not as uh, uh, severely uh, toxic. Um, so, and for that reason, if we are aware that a patient has FP53 mutation, uh, we generally move towards a, a more gentle hypomethylating therapy combination, which currently is uh, with venetoclax. Um, but it is also important to say on occasion you'll find another, you know, target in, in these patients, such as a, an IDH mutation, rarely a FLIP3 mutation. On occasion, a complex carrier type will give you a clue that you may have a P53 mutation, so it may be wise to wait and get that value. P53 staining can be a surrogate of P53 mutation, so all of that is important to perhaps make a decision. I don't think the data that's emerged from HMA venetoclax and P53 mutated patients um, is poor. Um, it is uh, decent. You know, it, you know, it's approximately half, maybe around there, that uh, response to treatment. Unfortunately, the response to treatment is short-lived, which is uh, quite a challenge. And the only um, chance you have with uh, these P53 mutated patients, ultimately, is to try and transition to transplant. And a lot of the time, that is not effective either. It is also important to note that not all P53 mutated patients are, are the same or are equal. Uh, commutations matter. Probably the location of the P53 mutation matters. As we all know, the allelic fraction of the P53 mutation may be important. Some uh, data emerging now suggests that if you drive down uh, the burden of P53 prior to transplant, you may have success or more success. 
So I think all of those uh, aspects are, are important. And then the question of MRV comes up again here. Um, do you have better success if you suppress uh, MRV uh, prior to consolidation after consolidation? You know, most would probably say yes. It's just that it, it takes, it's harder to do so. It sort of has to do with the kinetics of disease. So a challenging disease, a heterogeneous population, no therapy, it's highly efficacious, survival continues to be a problem. But yes, because of its tolerability, relative efficacy, I do use and in this group of patients. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Amir. I mean, I think for now in the U.S., if, if a physician asked me, you know, should I use HMA-VEN versus HMA, I probably would still be inclined towards HMA-VEN and TP53. I, I guess the question is more in the future. There are drugs, as you know, APR, CD47, that are hopefully going to improve. But again, this is phase 1B, and then maybe as doublets or triplets. Uh, so we will, you know, see more what emerges. What you said is very true about the VAF and the concomitant uh, complex cytogenetics or not, because... Uh, we've done analysis, it was presented at ASH by one of our fellows showing that those who have low VF, less than 40%, was the cutoff we found statistically. And without having a chromosome 17P, they actually tend to do almost as good as people who don't have a TP53. That'll be published uh, soon. So you're right, it's not the TP53 per se. It's you know a lot of variables uh, that go into it. And Marion, in, in Europe, uh, how is the data with the HMA VEN, Lotus RSE VEN, going to change things? you think both of those will become available? Will it be one? What's the feeling in the European community? Yeah, so it's not approved yet, but the reality is I think in a lot of senses, we already use um, the, the combination and Aza and Venetoclax is sort of our standard of care, although we still have to ask insurance and so on for coverage, but it's granted um, in all cases, actually. So um, I expect approval, um, actually, of both combinations um, within the next six to eight months in, in Europe. And um, it's also reflected in the clinical trials, right? So um, even in the immunotherapy trials, um, where they, for example, the CD, um, anti CD70 antibody and so on, they um, all randomize now against um, both substances and ASAS not considered to be standard anymore. So I think that's going to be the reality and we have to sort of then move on, adjust, combine, but um, ASA on its own, is also, although we still not have the approval, um, loosed only in you know rare cases, elderly, and, and where you cannot do the monitoring that well, or who don't wish to have the more aggressive treatment. Okay, great. Can I ask you, um, can I ask you both, or all three of you now, if you have availability of venetoclax, how do you now choose between uh, a patient that's fit or unfit, and who would you still give intensive chemotherapy to? Will you? follow the, um, you know, all over 75-year-olds would get Benazel or some would still get intensive chemotherapy and vice versa for the younger people? Uh, would you universally give intensive if they're fit for it or, or otherwise? So how do you think your practice will, will evolve uh, in the light of the data? You know, um, this is a, an extremely prominent question. Uh, a lot of people are asking it, you know, in the United States, uh, the combination is approved for patients who are 75 and up, and those who have uh, comorbidities or functional limitations that render them um, not suitable for induction chemotherapy. So we, as of yet, cannot recommend uh, the combination of HMA venetoclax for patients who would otherwise be younger or induction eligible. Uh, having said that, the data is uh, very exciting positive remission rates, especially among IDH-mutated patients, FBM1-mutated patients. Some would argue, obviously, P53-mutated patients not that great, but certainly uh, perhaps not have, it has not been compared head-to-head, -head, but uh, based on historical data, seems to be seems to compare favorably. So, I mean, I think I'm hopeful that we'll be able to answer these questions over time, but as of yet, our approach remains uh, induction chemotherapy for um, the, the fit patients, HMA venetoclax for the unfit patients. I will say one thing, it, it might vary a little bit from what my colleagues have said on this um, conversation. HMA venetoclax, um, for me, hovers somewhere between induction and HMA, um, both in terms of tolerability and efficacy. Um, and there are some patients that I do very much worry about with HMA venetoclax, you know, 
Um, I, I work in Boston. Uh, uh, the median age here at our general hospital is quite larger. On occasion, I'll see an 88-year-old, a 94-year-old in whom I worry about um, uh, giving HMA banana plaques, honestly, you know, because I, I do think that they may get in trouble. So I think there is still a role of HMA monotherapy in a small subset of patients who I worry about tolerability, narrow suppression, uh, complexity of treatment, uh, in whom I might uh, use monotherapy. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, Andrew. And I think, you know, at, at MD Anderson, we're, we're kind of probably moving our bar already. So above 75, for sure, we're not giving anybody uh, induction. I think the big, uh, you know, debate area that gets discussed pretty much on a weekly or two times, three times a weekly basis is those <laughs> who are between 65 and 75, you know. And uh, I think there's a little bit of a difference here where we're not, let's say convinced HMA van alone is enough uh, and maybe chemotherapy has some role but has a lot of toxicity. So this is where the triplets are starting to become, you know, for research purposes, our area of focus. So if you have a 65 or 60 to 75, if you identify an IDH or a FLT3 or TP53, we're definitely prioritizing an HMA van plus IDH, HMA van plus FLT3. These are trials or HMA plus TP53 targeted therapy, whether it's APR, CD47, or even triplets of those. Uh, so that's kind of moving the bar where we believe that the triplets will further push what also already looks like a good outcome with HMA VEN without potentially still having the same toxicity. And I think that's the question, you know, with the triplets, how much does the myelosuppression, does it start getting close to induction? We don't think so based on some of the early data, the early induction mortality, especially. So I would say there are very few, now core binding factor is an exception, right? Even if you have a 70 year old with core binding factor, he's reasonably healthy. Absolutely, we're gonna go for gemtuzumab with, you know, flagida has been our backbone, but anthracycline cytarabine based backbone. Um, but on the other hand, if I have a TP53, and this is very recent based on our analysis, uh, who's 50 years old uh, with a high VAF, you know, 50% with complex cytogenetics, we're actually starting to push those patients more towards HMA VEN plus one of the TP53 directed drugs, uh, APR CD47. Uh, so I think it's becoming more molecular selection, uh, at least in our experience, than the traditional age fit unfit. Uh, we'll hopefully have more data with some of these triplets over time, but I think in the targeted group, they will shift the curve is my feeling, IDH, FLT3, maybe TP53, uh, potentially over chemotherapy. Yeah, I think everything said, uh, so it's the patient disease-related factors uh, is discussed on the individual case basis. And also importantly, always the question, are we going to go for allo or not? So that also influences our decision, right? Patients who uh, we think we can, uh, that have favorable risk profile and not heading for allo um, are clearly still preferentially treated with intensive induction chemotherapy. Okay, well, in the interest of time for the last section, I'll uh, turn it over to uh, Dr. Fatih to give us a few of his highlights and things he was excited about in the targeted therapy world, FLT3, IDH, uh, and then maybe we'll have a few questions and wrap it up. All right, Amir, please. Thank you. So IDH and uh, FLT3 are, uh, have been historically very exciting in the last five years, perhaps a little bit less so uh, in, in the last uh, couple of conferences has been relatively a small number uh, of presentations compared to uh, some of the other uh, therapies. There was a lot of excitement around uh, HMA venetoclax, uh, uh, low-dose cytarabine venetoclax, uh, the, the maintenance uh, therapeutics that have been studied. Uh, uh, in comparison, uh, the excitement around FLT3 and IDH was more uh, muted, I would say, uh, during the IHA and the ASCO meetings, there were a, a few presentations that I personally thought were interesting and relevant. Um, uh, there was a presentation of uh, the IDH2 inhibitor anacidinib uh, plus uh, azacitidine uh, in, uh, um, in patients uh, with uh, IDH2 mutated AML. It was a head-to-head -head, uh, study versus azacitidine. Um, and it was small. Uh, it was uh, less than 100 patients total that were uh, studied. Um, and ultimately, it, there was no uh, significant difference in terms of uh, overall survival or med-free survival. In fact, overall survival between the two arms were the same. I think it was around 22 months, which was surprising in and of itself and probably um, an outcome related to the size of the study. Um, 
but the rates of uh, composite remission were markedly improved in individuals without anisetinib and azacitidine, approximately 55% uh, versus uh, in terms of composite remission as opposed to a composite remission in teams uh, when it came to um, HMA monotherapy. So that I think confirmed uh, much of what we already know, which is if you combine um, these targeted therapies, IDH inhibitors with three inhibitors with HMA, you tend to have a more pronounced uh, rate of response. You may be able to bridge transplant eligible patients to transplant. You seem to drive down um, IDH uh, mutational burden, which is a, a, a form of MRD analysis on these patients. There's also um, an abstract uh, presented that looked at uh, uh, the biology uh, of uh, response in patients who received HMA and IDH inhibitors. Uh, it seemed, uh, I should say, the biology of response and relapse, at least with relapse refractory uh, IDH inhibitors, when there is a relapse, there tend to be secondary IDH mutations or additional alterations in receptor tyrosine kinase pathways such as FLT3 and RAS it didn't seem to be that this was a prominent modality of uh, resistance uh, or disease progression in patients who received the combination. I think that data is still probably early and emerging, uh, I suspect, but that, that was also an interesting presentation that emerged. I do think that uh, uh, although early, uh, the data that's emerging from the MD Anderson in terms of the combination of uh, ivocidinib and venetoclax is highly uh, intriguing and exciting. You have a very high rate of composite remission uh, in patients who received the combination. And I think two or three cohorts that were presented, um, uh, you know, well above 80%. Uh, percent. Uh, that's also exciting. And uh, that study is ongoing. And we hope to have more uh, long-term results that emerge from that, ultimately to have uh, doublets or triplets, oral therapies, uh, that are highly effective for AML patients is a huge step forward uh, if we do get there successfully in the years ahead. In terms of FLT3, I think probably one of the more prominent abstracts that, that was presented, at least uh, in my view, was the updated data from the Admiral study that looked at uh, gilteritinib. As you know, the, Ad the Admiral study compared uh, gilteritinib in randomized fashion to a variety of uh, relapse refractory regimens, both, both lower intensity and higher intensity, and showed um, a higher rate of remission, a higher rate of composite remission, a higher rate of overall survival, which was the primary endpoint. Uh, this study showed that uh, that overall survival advantage persisted um, years out, um, and that patients uh, who ultimately had uh, the better survival were also those patients who tended to uh, respond, which was a surprise overall. Uh, the composite remission rate of gilteritinib on that study was around 50%. The, composite, the complete remission rate was somewhere in the 30%, uh, mid 30% range. And that's very exciting uh, in terms of uh, this uh, highly specific potent uh, FLT3 inhibitor uh, that is currently still under study um, in combination with conventional regimens such as HMA and induction chemotherapy. Uh, there were also a few abstracts that were presented on other FLT3 inhibitors, some data that's emerging from cronolinib, another targeted uh, uh, FLT3 inhibitor uh, that hits both TKD and ITD alterations in combination with induction chemotherapy. Um, that data is also early and hopefully emerging over the course of the next few years. So although perhaps not as exciting as some of the other targeted uh, therapies that are emerging and presented at EHA and ASCO, I believe that the realm of FLT3 and IDH remains very active and hopefully promising. Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost kind of a established area, right, where we're all checking FLT3 at, at diagnosis and, and relapse, which is good. I mean, they've become kind of the established standard approaches in, I think, most of the world. And of course, the next question is, like you said, is, and I think we'll see a lot of this data in the next two years of doublet versus triplet in Savage. One of the things I, I found uh, interesting was Catherine Smith's presentation. She uh, had shown it at ASH and updated it here looking at um, mut um, emergent mutations at the time of relapse post uh, giltritinib with the admiral study. They uh, had a small subset, about 40 patients, where they were able to get pre and post uh, NGS broad sequencing. And, and they found that in about 40% of the patients, there was a acquisition, I wouldn't say acquisition, emergence, because it may have been there and expanded, or it may have been a truly new acquisition, but emergence of a MAP 
uh, RAS pathway mutation, uh, which includes, of course, your NNK RAS and RAF, PTP11, NF1. Uh, this is also something we have frequently seen, as you know, Amir and Andrew and others, in IDH patients as well. You know, the same kind of pathway MAP kinase RAS is emerging, and also we're seeing it in venetoclax. So I think this is going to be a challenging area, and of course, there have not been any great uh, RAS inhibitors in AML treatment, so how do we overcome this? The other thing she showed was that, you know, there are people who can still have on-target escape with the F691, which is kind of similar to the T315, you know, in uh, uh, CML world, activation loop mutation. So even with these highly potent second-generation PLIT3 inhibitors, we're still seeing most of these people are having parallel escape pathways. And, and hopefully with combinations, whether it's HMA or HMA-VAN or chemo, you know, we can overcome these. Um, but we will have to see. Um, any other thoughts? Uh, I was just going to say, um, I think it's, uh, you know, what you mentioned was uh, very important, interesting. Uh, Catherine Smith is doing some uh, very good work in this area, developing uh, real science around uh, the mechanisms of resistance when it comes to the three inhibitors in general. Um, I think it's incre incredibly important uh, when it comes to the three inhibitors for individuals that are treating AML patients to uh, understand sort of the, the breadth and uh, unique aspects of individual FLT3 inhibitors. You know, for example, drugs like sorafenib and quizartinib are not particularly active in flint 3 t disease, whereas gilteritinib is, whereas we think mitostorin is. And even with gilteritinib, you mentioned F691. We all talk about DA35 as the prominent TKD uh, alteration and one of the resistance mutations, but F691 is not too far behind. And most of our flint 3 inhibitors do not inhibit that alteration. Uh, we published a paper not too long ago at our institution looking at a drug that's been approved um, in other solid tumors, cabozantinib, which tends to be active in F691. On occasion, you'll get a FLT3 resistance mutation, TKD alteration, as a mechanism of therapeutic escape, and you have to think, out, think outside the box and perhaps find the targeted therapy that may have a role in suppressing that, that clone. The alterations of other RTK pathways are, as you mentioned, also increasingly important and we need drugs to also target um, uh, those uh, alterations too. Marion or Andrew, any thoughts from the FLIT3 IDH? Uh, anything you were specifically excited about or things we haven't covered? I guess I'd wonder um, where do we go with respect to frontline phase three studies, particularly in the older AML space? You mentioned that the uh, inosidinib study was, was underpowered, but uh, how do you do a powered study now? Would you do ASA, Enosidinib versus ASA? Which which country would you would you do that in? Or do we really have to rethink our our strategy with respect to taking new drugs into the uh, frontline space? And also, Naval, with the uh, magrolimab data, I mean, obviously, really promising and potentially well tolerated combination with with ASA. Uh, I'd love to see a frontline uh, study of azomegrolimab, but uh, how do you do that now? Um, what's the control arm? And, uh, or do you, do you basically restrict that combination to P53 mutant AML? It makes it very difficult to uh, bring new drugs. So I'd be interested in all of your thoughts. That's a great question. It's very difficult now because azocytidine may not be the uh, comparator of choice anymore, right? Um, so uh, azovanetoclax uh, is now the new backbone, I would say, uh, because it's the new comparator, at least for AML. MDS, it's, you know, that, that's another question. The other aspect is, is aza going to be the backbone going forward now that you have an oral azocytidine? And those studies are now underway. Um, so and we're like working with a moving target when it comes to our standard comparator. You know, uh, we all hope that, at least I hope that in the future, uh, we will have well-tolerated to oral uh, medicines for patients. If that is the direction we're going, do we really engage in uh, three-year, four-year, five-year long randomized studies for subtypes that an AML take a long time because they're uncommon? Uh, when we know that an, an oral well-tolerated medicine may replace our comparator in the years ahead. So, um, I, you know, I think this is a, an amazing challenge um, and we have to be very thoughtful about it. And I don't think I, for one, can come up with a solution, but um, I don't think azocytidine is going to be uh, uh, the comparator 
of choice in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think I think there's a couple of paradigms that you know I like to look at, and maybe we will go that way, maybe we won't. I mean, I think myeloma faced the same problem, you know, in 2005, and and one of the things that had to change is your endpoints of studies because if you have multiple drugs which are all going to go into triplets, uh, which is going to happen, you know, whether it's through smaller studies or larger studies, and all of them, of course, want to head towards approval. I don't see how you can do a large phase three, you know, whether you say ASA, VEN versus ASA IDH or ASA VEN IDH versus ASA IDH or ASA VEN MAGRO versus ASA VEN. These are all studies where I think the industry is going to be very uh, reticent to support a lot of those. Uh, and I think people are not going to want to wait and the standard may move because you may have a phase two that shows, okay, ASA VEN IDH is excellent in 60 people. So who wants to do ASA IDH then or ASA VEN? So I think hopefully whether it's going to be, you know, things like EFS or whether it's going to be MRD endpoints, uh, hopefully these are validated. I, I think we have to move on to those. I don't see how we can be doing uh, 50 phase threes, you know, to get every triplet uh, 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 its uh, endpoint. The other thing is, I mean, our, you know, with the CLL world, I'm always amazed how they keep using chlorambucil as the backbone. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Everything else has been approved, but they still beat chlorambucil. So that question is going to be, is the FDA going to agree and say, hey, you can still beat ASA and, you know, we'll be fine with that since it's approved. I maybe don't think that's going to happen. Huh? What were you saying? Maybe we should use chlorambucil. Maybe you should. So ASA is like our chlorambucil, right? So, so I think the answer is a lot of these hopefully will be single arm, maybe based on MRD negativity, safety, uh, and see if the F now the US is always different in the way the FDA approaches this, I think, from others. So I think in the US, you know, things like Ven Giltritnib or Ven IDH, uh, the FDA would consider label expansion with robust data, especially safety not being impacted significantly. For the rest of the world, I think new endpoints are going to be needed. Otherwise, it's going to be very hard to get these drugs approved. Marion, any thoughts? Yeah, I completely agree. Just to make something positive as a last comment, I mean, we've been using 7 plus 3 since 1972 or something, so now we are confronted with this dilemma of combinations, which is fantastic, right? Good, yeah. <laughs> Good problem. Okay, with that, uh, we're at the end of our hour, and uh, thank you all very much. Uh, I think we really covered a lot of the important uh, ASCO EHA abstracts. I'm sure there are others we missed, uh, but uh, looking forward to talking to you all and doing another update in the near future. And good night, good afternoon, and good morning in reality to everybody here. <laughs> all right, thanks. Bye. Thanks, Nava. Yes, bye. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJHimong to join in the conversation and visit vjhimong.com for the latest updates in the field.